Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The thought of fleeing Mexico had been beyond the reach of Leon's mind, but now he grasped the power of change described in Estrada's book. Reading it, he had seen the shape of Mexico for the first time and understood the nature of the conflict that had not yet resolved at the time of writing. Until then, war's movement over the landscape had been invisible to him, approaching as clouds might, appearing suddenly on the horizon. Through the book, he'd seen the borders of nations and oceans as if observing the planet from the vantage of the moon. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Denis Ellis-Bechard, author of A Song from Far Away, about which the San Francisco Chronicle writes, Tough of mind and tender of heart, its beauty is wholly entrancing. I was enchanted by this non-linear novel in stories and had to go back to the beginning after I finished so that I could reread some of the passages that connect all the stories together. Fathers and sons, the power of reading lies in their consequences. War, travel, music, society, and humanity are all covered in stories that span decades and continents, finally ending in a story that explains how it all began. Hi, Denise. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you for having me on the show. So how did you decide to write this twisting, complex novel? And did you know in advance that it was going to be nonlinear? I did know that it was going to be nonlinear. This book has a rather interesting story. Um, I have been working on it for, I worked on it for about 20 years. And I originally wanted to write about the impact of war on artists and sort of how artists were responding to war and the ways that war shaped families and the way that art also shaped those families, the way sort of artistic creation was passing on stories or mythologizing wars. And I had, um, you know, about 20 years ago, began writing these chapters. I kind of saw this as a a book of stories that that covered a few hundred years. And it grew into this massive book that was about two or three times the size of what it is now. Um, And I eventually thought I would never publish it. It was never going to work. It was just too complicated. And then after taking a break from it um, a few years ago, I came back to it and realized that if I got rid of more than half of the material, I had a much more coherent story, even though it is nonlinear. And so, you know, what I think one of the, and to really explain the nonlinear approach, one of the things I want to look at was this idea of family history. And I, I often find that when I read a novel that has this very clear linear, you know, history with the capital H um, construction of the past, that there's something artificial about that in terms of, especially in relationship to how we understand history. And I was thinking more about, you know, how difficult it is to understand our histories because they've been digested by people with very strong ideological bents and they've been passed down to us. 
and I wanted to understand, I wanted to create a book that was going to sort of show people groping through the past, trying to understand it. And even when you go to the, you know, sort of the way I imagine it was like, you're looking at a trail in the darkness and there are these lamp posts along it and you see these pools of light and those pools of light are the different stories that kind of illuminate part of the past. And each one shows the path, path from a very different perspective. So that, that was really the, you know, the, the, the initial idea for the book. Um, and, and, you know, part of it, Part of the reason it is so nonlinear is because I was trying to experiment with telling history that way. And part of it was that it was just written over a very long period of time. And that allowed me to, to think about the process from different points of view. Mm. The first story is told by Andrew Estrada. His half-brother comes to visit after their father dies and steals a book. What can you tell us about that book? Right. So this this is a book that um, this is sort of this mysterious book. You know, the angels write poetry of blood. It's a book written by um, an Estrada from Mexico. It's written in Spanish. And, you know, the, the two characters in the story, Andrew and Hugh, the two half brothers, don't really know. They don't know where the Estrada name comes from. They know it's their father's last name. And Hugh is very jealous of his brother Andrew because Hugh didn't know his father most of his life, only to, um, you know only was was only reconnected with him later, um, and um, Andrew's very possessive of his father and sort of won't let Hugh in to the family and won't really give him access to um, his father's archives in any real way, and so this one book that Hugh steals he thinks might be a window into his father's past. And it's sort of the secret at the center of, of the novel. It, it, it is this redemptive story of a, of a young nobleman or, you know, young upper class uh, man in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution who um, defies his father and changes his ideals and is redeemed. And that narrative is really the ending point for where the book is going. I don't want to give a spoiler and, and ruin this for readers, obviously. So what I would say is that that there is this book whose truth and redemptive vision of history is questioned across the course of the novel that I write around it. Um, and as the readers go back into this family history closer to the, to, you know, these original stories um, that the family received ages ago, the reader begins to understand what is myth and what is truth and, or maybe, how difficult truth is to even access. Mm -hmm. The second story is also about siblings, uh, uh, two siblings who befriend an archaeology student, and then they invite him to spend the summer in, they're Iraqi, and they invite him to spend the summer in Iraq evaluating a collection of artifacts. How does this story connect to the rest of the novel? It's a wonderful question. Yeah, that's um, so. The second story is about a young art historian who is invited to go to Iraq and and look at this family's collection, and he realizes it's actually stolen art. Um, when Baghdad was invaded by the Americans, um, the, the society was destabilized, and a lot of criminal organizations looted the museums, and people often came into possession of stolen art, and scholars who work with the stolen art to help facilitate the sales sale of it are blacklisted but this story is one about a young american man francis whose father was a cia agent who had a child in iraq um, during the 1970s when um, the united states was kind of in the middle of its war of attrition destabilizing 
different regimes in order to pit them against each other to keep everyone in the Middle East weak and allow America to be in control. And he goes there thinking he's going to find out something about this lost sibling and understand um, his family history better. And this this story, it can first of all, there's a meeting in the story between one, Hugh from the from the first story and Francis. But what is most important about this story is it's it represents another lineage of this family. The family is, it's a military family that is split at, at one point um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, actually it splits. And you have this one very military lineage and Francis is at the end of that. And he's rejecting being a soldier and wants to be an artist. And at the other end of the family, the family that chose to become hippies and kind of go towards peace and the, where the, where, where the descendants were, you know, people who demonstrated against the war you have Hugh, who has returned to Iraq and become a soldier. So you have this reversal where the you know the family has split really around the question of militarism, and the two children at the end of 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 each of the two divides in that family are really doing the opposite of what those two divides did. So it's sort of showing this this story is sort of exploring the endpoint of this family and its impact on the world before it kind of dives before the novel dives back into the history. Mm-hmm. Then the third story, we finally meet Joseph Dillon. He's a really fascinating, unusual character. Why is his mother continuously repeating stories about her dead brother and her Acadian ancestors? So the, he's the son of a of a woman whose family and whose whose culture um, was was dominated by British colonialism. You know the Acadians. Um, settled in North America and wanted to be neutral. They didn't want to side with either France or England in the war between the two, but they were French speakers, and so they were viewed as potentially hostile by the British. And the British wanted them to to ally themselves with the British, but the Acadians insisted on staying neutral. And as a result, the the British um, in 1755 rounded up thousands of them and put them in boats and took them down the coast of the United States and just dumped them off at random intervals. I'm um, sort of it's the basis for Longfellow's Evangeline, you know, the, sort of the famous American poem. Um, but it's also, you know, where the Cajuns come from. Um, a, lot, a lot of the Cajun people were Acadians who were dumped in the Southern United States, who um, sort of formed communities in Southern Louisiana. But this particular family, our people are Acadians who fled the British and, found their way back to um, a place where they could live in um, in in uh, New Brunswick and um, Eastern Quebec. And so there's this 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 real animosity towards the British and a real sense of the importance of their of their history. It's a lot of rage. So so this character, um, uh, you know, Joseph grows up with sort of the overwhelming sense of history and rage and that you have to represent your people and you have to fight for your people and the the British tried to get rid of Catholicism at one point, and this is when her brother rebelled and was shot. And, you know, so this all this really, this, this cultural, the sense of cultural, defending the culture. And he wants no part of it. He sort of feels that it has overwhelmed his life. And he ends up leaving and fleeing and then fighting um, in the British, in, 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 the, in the Canadian Army, but in the British Army, really, during the Boring Wars in South Africa. But... But so the story is what the story is what the story is kind of getting at is sort of that oppressive weight of history for someone who wants to be a musician, wants to have freedom, wants to sort of choose his own life, and 
feels that he has to somehow embody a history that he doesn't really understand or um and his father uh, by the way she mentioned was was irish and but he was a french speaker and the mother didn't realize he was irish and was really angry about that when she found out um even though she had fallen in love with him as a very young woman and the father dies um when his boat sinks and so joseph is sort of trying to escape and try to understand the missing father but um but it's really set against the backdrop of this sense of uh, history that he perceives as futile as you know something that overwhelms his life but that he doesn't really see it having a place in his life mm -hmm. can you say more about the title of the book a song from far away yeah absolutely the so the third the third story is called the song from far away and it's joseph um hears you know he plays the violin and he plays his uncle's violin actually his uncle um was a really great fiddler but was shot by a british constable um and his father was also a great fiddler and played this Irish song, this very sad song that the son learns to play and that the mother hates. The mother always says, it's your father's Irish song and don't play it. But it, he loves this song and he carries it through his whole life. And at one point he ends up at, at the, towards the end of his life, he ends up on the, the front in World War I and he plays this song. And one of the characters from one of the other stories approaches him and recognizes the song and says that his father would, would, whistle that song and they, 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 there's this moment and they're both actually in the same family and it's that moment meeting on the front that makes them of the same family because um, the, the one who returns and survives ends up marrying the daughter of the other one um, after finding her but the um, there's a sense there's the, the, a literal song from far away that no one really understands they play it it evokes emotion in them it is changed by the countries they live in and they don't know its origin um, and then there's just the idea of, you know, the more metaphorical song from far away, far away, which is, you know, all these narratives they've inherited, all these myths they've inherited, and they, whose origins they don't understand, who, you know, often lead them to to do things that they don't really understand, you know, whether it's myths of war or myths of what it means to be a man of masculinity, uh, national stories that say they should fight in wars or or and be soldiers and be proud of it all these things they've inherited that they don't understand and can't find the source of. And so that one song sort of represents that sense of these things that shape our lives and that we carry, but whose origins we don't understand. Mm. Joseph, who, as you said, already fought in the Boer War in South Africa, is now in his 40s when he signs up for the American army. And now he's in Germany fighting Nazis. Why does he save the fellow soldier who is paralyzed with fright? Okay, so that would be the First World War. That would actually, so it's, um, oh, he's fighting first in the First World War, yeah, so yeah. just Germans. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fighting Germans in the First World War, yeah. It's just, it's, it's, the, it's, it's just not the Nazis. It's just, you know, before then. Um, but it's still the, the German front, the French, it's when the French and the British and the Americans are fighting on the German front um, in the First World War. And so um, he, the other soldier um, is a young man who's really not made for war, Nolan. He's from Oklahoma and... He, everywhere he goes, artillery shells keep falling around, falling nearby, and he's terrified, and he's having a hard time functioning, and he and Joseph, he's the one who, when, when Joseph is playing the violin on the front one night, he's playing that melody of his, his father's melody, Nolan hears it and recognizes it as a song that his own father would whistle, and his own father was this really horrible man who fought in the Indian Wars and would massacre, you know, massacred um, many people, um, participated in a genocide basically 
Um, but Nolan hears the song that his father would whistle, and he goes along the front and finds Joseph. And they're both fighting on the same side in the American army. And they talk, and they tell, and, and Joseph tells his story. And Joseph's never really been a storyteller, but he tells his story and is trying to understand it, like how he ended up here and what's happened with his life. And um, when, when a shell strikes, Nolan is, has shell shock. Like the next day, a, sh a huge shell strikes. Nolan has shell shock. He can't function. And Joseph carries him back to the medical tents. And Joseph dies not long afterwards. And so Nolan comes into possession of Joseph's violin and um, ends up sort of carrying his story onward from there. But Joseph's decision to save Nolan, is it's, it's really they've had this one moment of human connection. And there's this sense that um, this is somebody who has, ha has heard his story and maybe intuitively without even really understanding, maybe he's just helping a fellow soldier or someone who needs to be helped. But he's also helping somebody who's heard his story and is the only person who can carry his story forward. Um, and Nolan ends up marrying Joseph's estranged daughter. There's a very big story behind that. But ends up really carrying the family forward, literally, um, in terms of having children as well um, after Joseph dies. So Nolan takes that role. So it's a, there's a many different uh, things happening there. But that's sort of the, the short version. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So Nolan, um, it, the Nolan stories, everything uh, circling around Nolan, are, are centered on father's, the father-son relationship. And Nolan is obsessed with a dance that he does. And we hear about it when his son tells the story. So can you talk about that father-son relationship and tell us a little bit about the ghost dance? Yeah, absolutely. So Nolan returns from the war shell-shocked. He's not functional. And um, a Native, in the United States, we'd say Native, Amer Native American, but um, in Canada, we'd say Indigenous. But an Indigenous man comes to the house, and he's a, he's a, a scholar from Harvard. And um, this is shortly after World War I. He's looking to research the Battle of Wounded Knee, the massacre of Wounded Knee, and he, um, because Nolan's father was one of the, sold one of the American soldiers fighting in it. And in the process of asking these questions, Nolan learns about his own father's military experience and the violence he was implicated in. And he finds out about the ghost dance, which is this dance performed by indigenous tribes who, you know, when the buffalo were gone and they were starving, they would try to recreate the world. So the dance to bring back life, to heal, to heal themselves and to heal the world. And he reads that, some white men had gone and learned the dance to try to heal themselves and claimed that they had been healed. And he becomes obsessed with this idea of healing his own body from the war by trying to learn this dance. But he can't ever find anyone to actually teach it to him. He doesn't actually learn the dance. Um, and he ends up sort of inventing his own dance. And this is sort of why later his son says, you know, he doesn't know where his father came up with the dance. He just had the, he heard the story and, and, and wanted to try to find some way to express his suffering or, his confusion. And so it's, it's this slightly confusing moment for the son because 
in the sense he doesn't understand if his father actually learned something authentic and or appropriated something authentic um, or just basically found a way to move his body and heal himself, which is really more of the latter. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that would, that would be the, I think there's, there's a lot more I could say about it, but I think the, the, you know, the short version is that he's somebody who, Nolan is somebody who's hearing these sort of these American stories. And even though his father and the people around him have had, you know, they've all, all, I would say the people he's in, in contact with indigenous people. He's in contact with people who've seen this, this other America, seen America change very rapidly. And yet even then he doesn't really have access to those cultures or understand them. And he sort of has to try to invent something that allow him to, make sense of his world. And so there's this artistic moment for him where he starts to try to invent his own way of expressing his trauma. It's a, it's a really interesting. Nolan tells his son about changing his family name. He, uh, after his son, Joseph named after the grandfather that Joseph grows up and, and Nolan tells him um, about the family that he left and why he changed his name. Can you talk more about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, the family that Nolan left, the last name was Sheridan. And earlier we talked about the, 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 the descendant who goes to Iraq, whose father was in the CIA, who's the military family. And that family, that's Francis Sheridan. Those are the Sheridan. That's the Sheridan family. And they go back to this family in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the father participated in the genocide against um, indigenous people in the United States. Um, and when Nolan leaves that family, he... Um, encounters um, um, uh, a young Mexican man who's wounded um, and he doesn't really understand why or what has happened. There's been maybe a duel of some sort is what is his understanding. And this man um, is carrying a book um, written by Estrada. Um, and um, he takes the name on the book and, he, and, and, and the, the young Mexican he meets is using that name. And I, again, this is a, we're, we're, we're in pretty deep in spoiler territory here. So I'm trying to be very careful around exactly how much I say, because it sort of does spoil, um, there's a, runs the risk of spoiling sort of some of the secrets in the book. But there's this moment where Nolan intersects with someone else's story at the moment when that other person is ready to hand, there's, hand the story they themselves are carrying um, and to change their own life. And he sort of picks up this other story and this other last name and continues on with um, the last name of the Mexican young of the, of the young Mexican man, which really becomes the last name of the whole of the, of the other branch of the family that we get to know in the earlier stories. As I started to say earlier, I've noticed that so many of these stories have to do with father son relationships, right? They definitely do. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Did, did you figure that out? What's up with? Well, I think, yeah, what's up with that? I mean, there, there, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I think that um, there's this sort of tricky thing with writing where, where, you know, we're in this space where people will will say, well, you know, are you representing everybody correctly? And, you're, you know, is, you, is, the, is the world you're writing represent the world you live in? I think that's important, right? You know, that we live in a world with people from many different backgrounds and, um, and, uh, many, many, many men and many women, but I also think there's a sort of this the question of what am I trying to investigate? And, and as a man who was raised by a very violent father 
in a world that's you know where men are you know I, I lived in the in Canada as a child and then moved to the United States when I was ten, and I lived in you know the very militaristic American society society and in, in very militaristic American cultures I would say, where you know I grew up with a lot of kids whose parents were in the military and I grew up with an understanding of sort of the violence that fathers pass on to sons, and sort of the the need to identify with a, a violent manifestation of, of masculinity. And a lot of my writing is about understanding male violence and sort of the ways that men inherit these myths of what it means to be a man that are not sustainable. They end up destroying themselves and in the process destroying a lot of other people and really harming a lot of lives. And so the story for me was really about those narratives that fathers hand to sons. And it's not that, that, uh, and, and women are affected in the book too. There is, there are female characters in the book whose lives are, very much destroyed by this. Um, um, but my point of investigation for the story was sort of that tension between the father and the son and the pressure of the son to become the father um, or, or yet to become the father in a number of different ways. to so sort of assume some sort of heroic masculine role um, even while he was trying to, even while the son is trying to understand his own future. So I'd say that is sort of the play, thing I was most deeply investigating in the book. And because it's a book I wrote over 20 years, and those were questions I was thinking about a lot over those 20 years, especially because I worked in war zones. I you know, worked in Afghanistan and you know, went to Iraq and, um, and did, wrote a lot about war. I was, I, I want, I, this was something I wanted to investigate in the book precisely. So really to you know, dismantle this myth of the warlike man um, on which a lot of society is built. Hmm. What about Nolan's relationship with his own son? Um, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a much more gentle relationship. And I think that in a sense, Nolan, he, the son describes Nolan as being looking like a boy, even when Nolan's quite old. And in a way, Nolan never fully becomes a man. He almost, almost blocks himself from becoming a man. In any in, in, in any traditional sense, um, and the son reaches out and sort of finds you know new new stories. But the story of that time that the son grabs onto is sort of um, resisting the war, and he becomes a protest singer, and he ends up trading his his father's violin in a pawn shop. Um, this violin that's been carried you know across numerous continents and through numerous wars and trades it away in a pawn shop for a guitar because he wants to let the, the past go, let history go and become a man of this new era. And he plays protest songs and ultimately really ends up becoming in his vision of being this, this, this hero of the protest age, um, a much more traditional man than he ever really intends to. And, but he's also in, he also negates himself. So it's sort of this lineage where I guess you could say that Nolan and his son, become people who have negated their presence in the world. They don't really have a model for being a man that's positive. And so there's sort of an absence there. And all the sons that grow up in that, in that lineage, of one of whom is Andrew in the first story, grow up with the absence of, of a, a, a clearly defined father um, mm. who offers them any sort of vision for what they could be in the world. And then why does Nolan's son after the protest songs, why does he keep telling the same stories in his novels? He says that himself, right? Um, 
Right, right, right. That will he right, and, and it could, because I what's happening there is in a sense is that he's trying to redeem his narrative, and his I, I guess the way I would say it is it's he is he's believed so passionately. You know, he decides he's going to be a hero of the anti-war movement, and his family's really split in two. One which is you know very militaristic, and then there's Nolan's line, which is which is not militaristic, which is seen the harm of war and turned away from it, and in a sense he wants to embody this this protest movement, and he keeps on writing books about it, even after the world has turned away and lost interest in resisting the Vietnam War and gone about business as usual, I would say. Um, and so if he's still telling these stories over and over and again, part of it is it's, it's all he has left to hang on to. He's hung his identity on being on this form of being a hero, and he can't find another identity. Um, he can't figure out how to be a father. He can't figure out how to be a good husband. Um, he doesn't really know what his role in society is other than resisting war. And so it's sort of kind of looking at the peril of, I mean, it's the peril of building yourself up against something, but of, in one way, embodying a heroism in any form. And in another, the, the degree to which war has so profoundly transformed societies that even those who reject it are in many ways shaped by it. Um, and yeah, so I would say that's what I was trying to get at more or less with that. Well, it feels like I'm going to have to go back and reread now in light of what you've just said. <laughs> it was so intriguing, these uh, circles and uh, continu the continuity and the back and forth and the, the mystery. There's kind of a lot of mystery in here you have to figure out. Um, but I know I'm super curious, so I bet anyone listening to this is also interested can you talk more about the 20 year span of writing this novel? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I wrote, I published, wrote and published other books during that period. And I'm, I don't think I haven't, let me see if I've been, no, I, so I started writing this book before I'd ever published a book. So I published my first book in 2006 and um, the, um, this, the, yeah, these, they're, they're basically when I started out writing it, I was um, writing stories that, were looking at um, you know our involvement in the war in Afghanistan. This is after 9/11, so I was sort of trying to connect people. The way I I, I think what I would say is that 9/11 was this was this moment when a lot of people began to rewrite their histories, and so people who previous to that had come from military backgrounds or had families that had militarism in them, I think we're moving away from that and really thinking that was something of the past, at least a lot of people I knew. And then 9-11 happens, and you have this incredible resurgence of nationalism and of sort of redirecting and reshaping identities around the world. And I was trying to look at write stories um, about that. So I think that was sort of the starting point. And um, I originally imagined it was going to be this book that was going to sort of have layers that would kind of go into even fantasy, you know, stories, stories that people were writing that were, that were purely fantastic. Um, and sort of, you know, the mise en abime, the story within the story within the story. Um, but, I, but, but I guess I just would, my, what I would say is it was a book that just sort of evolved very organically. I, because I was writing and publishing other books and I kept returning to it and looking at it and thinking, how do I do this? What am I trying to do here? And am I trying to say too much? And is this too complicated? All those questions were arising. Um, I guess I would just say that it was a book that um, that went through many, many, many incarnations, and um, 
I needed the time to travel a lot and to do a lot of journalism and a lot of other writing to understand what I was trying to say. And some of the early drafts were overloaded with material where I was trying to say too much in a way. I was trying to say things that, um, I was trying to under, understand things by writing. And when, later when I reread them, I thought, well, maybe I didn't really understand that. So it was easier to throw a lot of that material away. And um, I would say, you know, the first 15 years of the writing were accumulating, I think there's 700, 800 pages. And then the last five years of it were more like carving away something to find its real shape, where I began to throw material away and then whittle it down to the story that it is today. Hmm. So interesting. So what are you working on next? Or maybe, maybe I should ask, how long have you been working on the next book? <laughs> well, I am working on um, a few different books. I kind of always seem to, you know, I'll write something and then I'll put it aside and I'll come back to it. So I'm not sure which one to say. I'm working on a book. Uh, one of the books is a book about moving to rural Virginia when I was 10 and the way that, um, I, the white people around me were sort of horrified to see that I didn't understand the racial codes of the, of the, of the rural South and that I was taught to abide by those racial codes. And it's sort of an investigation of, of what racism looks like when you're being taught it at 10 rather than just learning it organically from the beginning. Um, and, you know, in the United States, I often hear people say, oh, well, racism it's sort of this thing that occurs naturally because people are different. And that wasn't my experience at all. My experience was it was very codified and you arrived and you were taught and you had to abide by the rules. Um, and so I, it's, it's, it's a collection of, not, I, almost like a collection of essays, but sort of looking at that and then looking at what it actually means to be racist today and the ways that racism constantly changes shape every time people try to shine light on it. It, it, it shifts and sort of finds a new place to... Um, inhabit within the culture. Um, so I'm working on that and I'm working on a few novels that have been sort of, you know, I'll work on one and for a year and then put it aside and come back to another one. Wow. What an interesting process. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you, Denis, for joining me today. It's been so fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the wonderful questions. And thank you for joining me again. This is GP Gottlieb author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Denis Ellis-Bachard, author of A Song from Far Away, a novel. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As new Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.